Turn with me in your Bibles to Sam, or sorry, First Samuel, uh, eighteen. We're going to be looking at three chapters, so not not preaching them verse by verse, but trying to get a feel for some of the stuff that happens there and uh, the record that we have here in God's Word of this part of David's life. So it's going to be Sam or <laughs> First Samuel. 18 to 20. Let me pray. Father God, I pray that you would come and speak to us. We have your word open before us. It tells a story of a man who loved you 3,000 or so years ago tells of the joys and the struggles of his life. We pray that as we pay attention to that story for a moment, that you would teach us from your word the things that are right for us. Come and speak to us by your spirit, we pray. Amen. It can come up as a bit of a shock to us when we realize that not everybody loves us just the way we are. Because we start out in life loved. Uh, most of us, at least, can be grateful to God for, for being born into homes where our parents loved us, cuddled us, looked after us, centered their world around us. Uh, we're just loved in those early days. And then it comes as a bit of a surprise to us when we find that that not everybody sees it that way. Not everybody loves us. We soon find ourselves treated uh, as trespassers, as rivals, as enemies in some cases. And this is what, what happened for David David lived most of his life with enemies. If you're familiar at all with David's life, you'll know that he he fought a lot of the time. And if you've ever tried to to read his prayers in the Psalms, you'll realize that some of his prayers are are prayers very much about his, his life with his enemies. We too live with enemies, with people who criticize us, people who ridicule us, we're attacked, sometimes just avoided, Uh, maybe we're stabbed in the back. Maybe not all of those things all of the time, but, but enough of those things, enough of the time for us to realize that, that sometimes we aren't loved, not by all people all of the time, and certainly not loved the way God loves us. We're going to think for a moment about David's enemy before we move on to think about David's friend. David's enemy throughout most of his life, you'd always think of, of Goliath maybe as David's archetypal enemy, but that's, that was a, a moment in David's life. David's ongoing enemy is Saul. Repeatedly Saul tried to kill him and Saul's murder attempts on David make up the bulk of chapters 18 to 20 of 1 Samuel. This morning we're going to sort of skim through this. 
The story picks up where we left off last week. So if you remember, David preached for us last week on the, the David and Goliath story. David has defeated the, the giant Goliath and the army's returning home. And, and early in chapter 18, we work out why it is that Saul becomes an enemy of David. Uh, as we skim through chapters 18 to 20, I'm going to read a couple of short passages for you. I'm actually going to read them out of the message translation, so don't worry about trying to follow them, but you're aware that, that they're coming from chapters 18 to 20. So there's this incident when they return from the battlefield. Let me read for you. As they returned home after David had killed the Philistine, the women poured out of all the villages of Israel singing and dancing, welcoming King Saul with tambourines, festive songs, and lutes. In playful frolic, the women sang, Saul kills by the thousand, David by the ten thousand. This made Saul angry, very angry. He took it as a personal insult. He said, they credit David with ten thousands and me only with thousands. Before you know it, they'll be giving him the kingdom. From that moment on, Saul kept his eye on David. So there we have it. This is the reason why Saul becomes a sworn enemy of David. He's afraid of David. He's afraid of David's growing popularity. He's afraid that one day the people will raise David to be their king. Twice in quick succession, Saul tries to pin David to a wall with his spear. After those failed attempts, he, he tries a, a more subtle plotting approach where he t twice tries to send David into situations in battle where he knows David will be killed. He offers his daughters uh, in marriage uh, as bait. We read on in, in chapter 19. So that's four attempts so far that Saul has made to kill David. In chapter 19, we read again about him trying to pin David to the wall with a spear, a third attempt. And you'd think by then that maybe after three failed attempts with a spear, twice trying to, to send him into battle and that failing, you'd think that Saul might give up, but no way. Instead, we read in chapter 19 uh, of Saul organizing a murder squad and sends them around to David's home. The kind of thing that we're quite used to over the years of our troubles in Belfast. A gang going around to a home to end a man's life while he lies in bed. Here's the story. It was night. Saul sent men to David's house to stake it out, and then first thing in the morning to kill him. But Michal, David's wife, told him what was going on. Quickly now, make your escape tonight. If not, you'll be dead by morning. She let him out of a window, and he made his escape. Then Michal took a dummy and put it in the bed, placed a wig of goat's hair on its head, and threw a quilt over it. When Saul's men arrived to get David, she said, he's sick in bed. Saul sent his men back, ordering them, bring him bed and all, so I can kill him. When the men entered the room, all they found in the bed was a dummy with its goat's hair wig. Saul stormed at Michal. How could you play tricks on me like this? You sided with my enemy, and now he's gotten away. Michal said, he threatened me. He said, help me out of here or I'll kill you. 
This was the sixth attempt that Saul made on David's life. And it's the last for the time being. I want you to think about this for a second in the context of what we've thought about the last couple of weeks. This isn't probably the way we thought this story would work out. A couple of weeks ago, we learned how how God chose David, how he anointed him to be a future king in Israel. So we know that God is with him. Last week, as we thought about David and Goliath, we saw how, how wonderfully David trusts God, how he's willing to take massively courageous steps. So, so not only is God with him, but, but he is with God. He's, he's open to God, he's obeying God, and, and he trusts God. Yet imagine in a scenario like that that things would go well for a person. God is with them. They're they're walking with God. Is that not a recipe for a a good life? A walk in the park kind of Christian experience? Friends, sometimes we have life with God presented to us as if it's the answer to all of our problems. It starts out when we're kids and some of the children's songs that we sing. I I saw the, the lyrics here. I don't know if I ever sang this one. It sounds vaguely familiar. Since Jesus came in and took away my sin, I'm in right, outright, upright, downright, happy all the time. I think I sang that one. I'm not sure. If I didn't sing that particular one, I sang ones like it. Jesus comes in, happy all the time. Bingo. That's how it works. And it's not just children who are hearing this kind of thing. Sometimes we hear the well-meaning evangelist. He'll say something along the lines of, come to Jesus and your troubles will end. Jesus will take those problems away. Folks, this stuff is pretty widespread. It presents itself in, in different shapes and sizes, but it's not biblical. It has absolutely no basis in, in God's word, this notion that life is, is easy or, or a walk in the park when we walk with Jesus. David's troubles didn't end that day when, when Samuel arrived in Bethlehem and anointed him. In fact, it looks to me like a lot of David's troubles started just about then. David wasn't happy all the time. Folks, I don't think there's any biblical warrant for the belief that Christian life is easier than life without Christ. It's quite possible that life will be in some ways harder for those who seriously commit themselves to God and follow Jesus. What we can say, though, is that life with God is is deeper, it's more authentic. We know the joy of our sins forgiven. That's no small thing. It's nothing to be glib about, to to live in this life with a clean conscience. What what a wonderful thing. We live with a sense of purpose, or we can do, that comes from obeying and walking in step with our Creator. That's That's a wonderful thing. 
to know that our lives are in step with the very purposes of this universe. Whenever we entrust ourselves to God, he promises his presence to us, no matter how difficult our circumstances are. So folks, it's not that life becomes easier and that the smile becomes wider. It's that life becomes deeper and richer as we walk with God's presence. Let's get back to David. We've already thought about the enemy that he had in Saul, but in these dark days, there's something much, much bigger and much better going on in this enemy, Saul. David has a friend, and it's Saul's son, Jonathan. Although much of these three chapters have to do with uh, David and Saul, uh, their fighting, the attempts to kill David, the passage begins and it ends with friendship. So look with me at chapter 18, verse 1. Jonathan became one in spirit with David, and he loved him as himself. Then verse 3, Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as himself. Folks, this is a pretty textbook, classic children's story, David and Jonathan being friends. Perhaps we, we forget the, the implications of all of this. Remember who these guys are. Jonathan is the son of Saul, the king. Jonathan, by rights, expects in the near future to be the king. David is the guy who's been promised that he will be king. These two are perfectly on course to be rivals for the rest of their lives, to be sworn enemies. It's a stunning act of, of selflessness here, I think, for Jonathan to befriend David. Jonathan, we're told, was wonderful in battle. It's hard when somebody arrives in the scene who's better than you at the very thing that you're good at. Jonathan was, was at the heart of Saul's family, at the heart of the royal family. It's hard when, when somebody's welcomed into that family who becomes, at least for a while, the blue-eyed boy. Jonathan, as we've said, is the crown prince. David is the one who will become king. Everything about this speaks of, uh, of, of Jonathan giving of himself to, to receive David into this friendship. I think it's a wonderful foreshadowing of the, the lovely and incredible love of Jesus. One day Jesus said to his disciples, greater love has no one than this, that he lay down his life for his friends. Jonathan didn't literally lay down his life for David. He did something that's perhaps even harder. He lived on a life where he had given up all. His position and all the privilege that life afforded him. He gave that up for his friend David. Look with, with me, if you flick over to chapter 20, verses 41 to 42.
By now we're, we've seen these six failed murder attempts where Saul has tried to kill David. And Jonathan, Jonathan had always hoped that he could keep uh, David and Saul from, from fighting. He, he always wanted to be able to bring David back into the family, but it didn't work in the end, and he realized that. So at this point, these two are about to part company. Jonathan meets with David in secret in a field. He uses an archery lesson. I don't know if you remember this story. Uh, he, he fires a couple of, of bows, and it's kind of like a coded message to David to let David know, David, you're not safe. You, you need to go. You need to leave the royal court and never come back. It's over. You can't be here. He uses this lesson to communicate this secret message. And it's the last time that these two will ever be together before David goes into permanent exile. Look at verse 41. David got up from the south side of the stone and he bowed before Jonathan three times with his face to the ground. They kissed each other and wept together. But David wept the most. Jonathan said to David, Go in peace, for we have sworn friendship to each other in the name of the Lord, saying, The Lord is witness between you and me, between your descendants and my descendants forever. Then David left, and Jonathan went back to the town. So this story about David and Saul as enemies begins and ends with David and Jonathan as friends. Folks, these, think of the circumstances here of this friendship, David and Jonathan. It wasn't an easy or a natural thing for Jonathan to be friends with David. I'm trying to imagine the scenarios. He lived in the Jonathan lived in the king's court where his dad hated David. Jonathan was probably part of of groups of of soldiers who went out and hunted David. And it was in that context that he maintained this friendship with David. Folks, many of us live out our friendships and our relationships in very hard circumstances. It's our our marriages, our family relationships, our friendships. We live those all out in a world that that urges us to, to look after number one, to assert our rights, uh, to defend our privacy. We're encouraged to, to ditch friends when they no longer suit our purposes. There's not much room for, for this kind of thing. This kind of selfless, uh, committed friendship. Friendships of this David and Jonathan variety are are pretty rare. Folks, this is something that I am coming quite late to in my, my Christian life. It's taken me a long time to realize this. But friendship is is one of God's greatest spiritual gifts to us. This is one of the ways in which God allows us to keep going in difficult circumstances. Whenever we don't have the encouragement of a friend, our most promising beginnings soon fail. 
Without friendship, our, our best ventures often fail. Most of us can keep things going, at least for a while, but then we struggle without somebody beside us to, to encourage us and, and to help us. Folks, this is why God gives us friendship. Eugene Peterson encourages us not to make light of friendship. He says, friendship is a much underestimated aspect of spirituality. It's every bit as significant as prayer and fasting. Folks, I say that I'm a bit slow to pick up on this. I think, I grew up in a tradition where the emphasis was on a a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. And that, that's absolutely fundamental to, to what we believe. But it's not an individual relationship with Jesus Christ that God calls us to. As soon as he calls us, he, 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 he longs to see us connect with each other and find ways of encouraging each other. I'm sure any of you who've had this experience of, of good friendship would agree with, with what I'm talking about here this morning. I, I know there are people here in church this morning who are only here because somebody else remembered to ask them, a friend. Somebody said, listen, why don't you come along? Why don't you come and be in the presence of God and His people? I know there are others here who've only been able to persevere in their life of faith because in those times when, when the wheels had come off and they, they felt like it just wasn't working anymore, somebody else was able to, to see that and, and encourage them a little bit. And there are people here who, who quite frankly, have just come through awful experiences and without the friendship of somebody around them, God knows where they'd be. Folks, friendship is a God-given gift. If you think, by the way, that I'm overdoing this a bit here, I'm taking this one part of the Bible and making something of it, let your mind wander a little bit. Think of Jesus, the son of David, David's greater descendant, the author and perfecter of our faith. He shows the centrality of friendships in everything, in the way he lives. Think of how he dealt with his disciples. These guys are nobodies, absolute nobodies. Jesus chooses them, and for the next three years, he gives himself entirely to them. These guys, yes, he, he teaches them to preach he teaches them how to heal. He teaches them how to do this stuff. But that's not all. Jesus travels with them. He sleeps in the same B&B with them. He takes them when they go shopping together. He gives himself entirely to them. Jesus didn't think of these guys simply as his his servants, his sidekicks, the ones who he was teaching. We get a bit of a glimpse of this in John chapter 15. Jesus speaking to his disciples that night in the upper room before he goes to the cross. He says, you are my friends. 
I no longer call you servants. Instead, I've called you friends. Isn't that amazing? God among us sits around a table with 12 guys and he says, you're my friends. Jesus didn't try to do anything without involving these guys, loving them, encouraging them, building them up and being a friend to them. Friendship. We're almost finished thinking here about David and Jonathan's particular friendship. If we read on in the story, we find that the promises these guys made to each other did last. Through all the awful circumstances that that confronted them, they they managed to, to live through those and be faithful to one another. It was while David was in the desert and he learned that Saul was hard on his heels. There's an occasion when Jonathan came out to meet with him. In chapter 23, we learn that Saul's son Jonathan went to Horish and helped David to find strength in the Lord. Don't be afraid, he said. My father Saul will not lay a hand on you. You will be king over Israel, and I will be second to you. Even my father Saul knows this. The two of them made a covenant before the Lord. Then Jonathan went home, but David remained in Horish. Isn't that brilliant? That's about a decade at least after the first David and Jonathan incidents. A decade in which Saul's been hounding David to kill him. The thing that I love about, about this, this friendship that they have, and it's, it's captured in that passage in, in chapter 23, David and Jonathan are together, and Jonathan does, what does he do? He doesn't come to David to talk to him about the, uh, the latest happenings in Big Brother or who's doing well in The Apprentice or where they're going on holiday. He comes to help him find strength in the Lord. Folks, this is the only way to live the life that God calls us to. If that statement seems a bit stark, I'm I'm coming to that conclusion. This 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 is Christian living. We live as friends. We know how difficult life is can be. We know how difficult it is to follow Jesus faithfully and well. We have our enemies and we face difficult circumstances. We are weak, each one of us, and we know that we fail. But under God, we're to be friends to one another. We're to help each other find strength in the Lord. Folks, that's what Jonathan did for David. It's what Jesus did for his disciples. 
It's what Paul did throughout all of his missionary journeys, never alone, always working with somebody, teaching them, encouraging them. And it's what we're called to do together time and time again in the New Testament. Folks, I've probably mentioned this before, but think of the one another commands of the New Testament. We're to be devoted to one another, to honor one another, to live in harmony with one another, to accept one another, to instruct one another, to greet one another, to love one another. Friends, the New Testament doesn't make sense for individuals. It doesn't work. We can't obey Jesus Christ. We can't live the life that God calls us to on our own. We can only do it as friends. I didn't want to say what I've said this morning without taking the chance to thank um, people whom I can see from up here. It's, it's a privilege of preaching that you can see other people's faces and know who's, who's here. I, I want to thank many of you who've been good friends to me and who have helped me find strength in the Lord. And I hope that there have been occasions where in some small way I've been able to do that for you. And I hope that as we move into the future, we don't settle for anything less than that. Anything less than sharing life together so that we all might flourish and be all that we could be in Jesus. This is what God calls us to life together to friendship. Let us pray. Father God, we, we sometimes imagine that life with you is, is all about working very hard at it and trying to do the things that you want us to do and obeying rules or, or these kinds of things. Thank you that you call us, that you invite us to be your friends. And thank you that you're your plan for us and, and the life you call us to is one where we can be friends to one another. Lord, we pray that this might become a reality among us. Lord, you know all the reasons why this is difficult for us. All the reasons why it's, it's easier to keep each other at arm's length. why it's easier to live life with a hard shell than with open arms. Lord, we pray that you would work in us. Amen.